Kate, it is great to have you here. I'm really, really excited about this. Uh, I thought it was exciting. I don't know if you saw Seth's tweet, but um, uh, our Seth, the partner from 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 Eclipse Ventures, that that is on our board. Um, and when he saw that you were here, he was very excited about it because obviously he's uh, appreciated your wisdom over the years, as we all have. Uh, I thought you might start by talking about how we first met. Because Adam, were you in the office when Kate first came by? In and this would have been like. Kate, was this like January or February of 2020? I think it was January 2020 before all the crazy lockdowns. And I remember meeting you, Steve, Jess, and Robert Mustaki specifically. It, but I don't remember meeting Adam. Yeah, Sorry, Adam. I think this might have been – I know this might have been like moments before I joined. Cause, yeah. Uh, I joined sort of towards the end of the day. Right. Okay. So this is and – and it was kind of – and Kate was obviously like super impressed – Kate, your background is in industrial engineering and uh, had spent time at a defense contractor and then spent a ton of time at Apple, but it was not meant to be because you were moving back home to Arizona, right? You were, it was like, yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me today. I'm really excited to be here, but yeah, I'd love to tell the story of how I kind of ended up at Oxide. And I think it all started with that trip in January out to the Bay area. I was actually on a business trip at the time and um, stopped by for dinner with, Jess and got to meet you guys in person and at the time we were really looking to move back to Arizona which we ended up doing um, in April of 2020 and so I thought oh well Oxide's really Bay Area only and it's just not going to work out from a timing perspective um, in terms of geographies but then as we all know remote work became a real thing <laughs> and really opened a lot of doors. It did open a lot of doors and so we would been thinking we knew that we were going to be hybrid local remote but and I would just I just feel so embarrassed about some of the like some of the ridiculous notions we had. I had this notion that like oh operations needs to be based in the Bay Area. Like I'm not sure like, and I think like, I I would say that was like jointly shared. It wasn't just me who had that idea, but I don't know. It felt like something like oh you've got to be in the office for this. I don't know why. No, that that made a ton of sense. It, it really felt like the right thing, even though it turned out not. But I just want to pause for a second to just note that Kate is the first guest to ever say she's been happy to be here. <laughs> and I just want that to not escape our attention. Let the record <laughs> Right, yeah. as opposed to, no, we, so you're saying that it would really be more natural for folks if we started off with a complaint about Twitter spaces? We haven't complained about Twitter spaces at all. <laughs> That'd be more <laughs> familiar. Yeah. Am I in the right space? We're talking about stolen cars, not how Twitter spaces is a disappointment. I, so, but Kate, you were moving back to Arizona, and I remember thinking like, oh, Kate's great, but it's just not to be. It's, the, it's, it's not going to be. And then, yeah, as you say, uh, the pandemic hit. As it turns out, like the gig in Arizona, maybe not the best. <laughs> yeah, that didn't work out. The, the gig that brought me back to Arizona turned out to be a business unit that was being sold off just <laughs> a couple months later. Um, and so... I moved back to Arizona and started talking to Oxide about opportunities and turns out a rec went up that I happened to see for a technical program manager and it seemed to fit a lot of my background and skill set and I got really excited about that, especially the opportunity to kind of wear multiple hats, which has turned out to be really true at Oxide. Well, I remember that, right. I remember you saying that like one of the things that had frustrated you previously in your career is just getting siloed and 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 seeing like the right answer, but not being able to affect the right answer because you're in the like, nope, that's the responsibility of a different organization, which is always a super frustrating feeling. And I mean, so, you know, Adam, obviously you were on board when Kate came on board because that was a couple months later. Um, 
And it, Kate, I, I remember like just early after you arrived, just in terms of, I, I mean, it's, I, such a, I was so ignorant of all the supply chain issues. I remember you, you the, the, one of the first things you said is like, we need to figure out what we're doing for long lead time parts. And I'm like, Kate, we don't know what we're building. <laughs> We've got <laughs> yeah, I remember distinctly coming in and having two big questions for the engineering team that was already there, which was a small scrappy team at the time. And it was, what is our roadmap? Like, what's the project schedule? Do we have a Gantt chart? Do we have dependencies? And where are long lead parts and where are we out in the bill of materials to start procuring? Because when I walked in, it was, we're going to ship 18 months later. And that was the reality. I was like, if we're going to do this, let's figure these two things out. Yes. And, and I would say three years later, we've done one of those two things. We have, we have dealt with unequivocally. Uh, no, we know when we're shipping. But the, um, so it, you were asking us about long lead time parts. I remember thinking like, that is, that's, we, that's nuts. We don't know what we're shipping. But you were, as we started digging in and you were starting to dig in on like, all right, look, like we don't know everything that we're shipping, but can we make, we can make some decisions. And yeah, I remember, and this is, when did the supply chain crunch really hit? Cause this is definitely before the supply chain crunch. This is. Yeah. So I joined in June of 2020 and I think we were starting to feel some early inklings, you know, like toilet paper shortages and stuff <laughs> right. like that, but it, it hadn't reached the tech sphere completely yet. We weren't in this crazy escalation path of, on allocation for almost every part with 52 plus week lead times. We weren't quite there where the chips uh, shortage was top of the national media headlines. Um, I think that really started to hit harder in Q4, which actually is when we started procuring. So I joined in June. We kind of started getting to determination on some of the key components, not an entire bill of materials, but the really strategic parts that we couldn't live without. And, um, we started procuring in November of 2020 on those strategic parts, like the Intel, um, AMD, Chelsea, Murata, like some of those key parts. And I feel like the fans were early in there, right? I think that we, the Sanyo Denki fans, yes. I feel like we're- Sanyo Denki. And we, this was one of those, it's like a total wake up call again, where, you know, you're coming in about long lead time parts. I'm like, really, this is like really an issue. And then we get to some of these lead times. And again, before supply chain crimes, before this is top of mind for us societally and getting like, 52 week lead times on fans you're like wait what and i i think i was like most people in that like i just didn't really think about the complexity of getting things from a manufacturer like the the complexity of manufacturing something and in pulling together all of its constituent parts and ultimately it's like takes a long time do you want to maybe go into some of the, the endemic complexities of this and why something that feels simple, like a Sanyo Denki fan, is actually not simple at all? Like, why are these lead times so long, even in good times? Yeah, so a lot of these um, key suppliers, especially the ones that are building high-quality parts, are working all the way up their supply chain to the lowest node. And so they're doing quality audits of their subcomponent suppliers, and they're really working on forecasting and building material pretty far out, which leads to some of these long lead times. Um, not typically 52 weeks. That would be in this constrained environment. But it's not unusual in this industry to see you know, six plus month lead time on small parts because of that complexity of where their subcomponents come from and how many bomb items in the bill of materials. Bomb is bill of materials. I guess maybe not everyone in our audience knows that. Um, 
where all their bomb items come from. And they're not always transparent about where they come from, right? I mean, like, sometimes it can be like you're getting quoted some outrageous lead time and you really got to take it apart to figure out what is actually causing this lead time. Yeah, so Senior Danky fans is actually a really good example of that. So they had um, a pretty complex bill of materials and we knew this was a strategic part and we had already started designing that as one of our key components. We'd done thermal simulations um, with our mechanical engineering team that we're using at Benchmark Electronics. And we had started realizing that, wow, this system is pretty hot. We need, we need to take cooling very seriously. And these senior Denki fans uh, fit what we need in terms of capability and the cost and the quality, most importantly, quality and capability. And we had started working with the senior Denki engineering team because we were going to make kind of a semi-custom, take a COTS fan and make some modifications specific to the oxide design. And so... Do you want to talk about that modification? Because um, that modification is very near dear to my heart. Yeah, we um, basically changed the PWM of the fan so that it doesn't sound like a jet engine taking <laughs> off. So we reduced the PWM so that it uh, is a little bit slower and that allows us to meet all, meet our thermal model, but also not have crazy amount of decibels of audio. Yeah, and so just a bit to, to kind of define some of these terms here. So PWM is pulse width mod, uh, modulation, and the this is kind of like your frequency of high versus low signals that indicates like how fast it spin a motor. Um, you know, the, the the more on versus off that you have, the faster it will go. And zero percent PWM is like all off. How fast does it go at all off? And the 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 fans, the Sanya Denki fans, as quoted, have are five thousand RPM fans when they are. So like you can't go slower than five thousand RPM. And Adam, have you have you been around the five thousand RPM fans? Uh, no, not not in, not in the flesh. I've only heard the recording. Oh, really? Turns, oh, yeah. Mm. It turns out if you stand next to it with your Apple Watch on, it'll tell you that you're like gonna hurt your eardrums from the <laughs> audio. And, yeah. But Adam, you recall when I was wounded by one of the fans? Do you do you remember this? No. Oh, oh, it like took off part of your finger. It did take off part of my finger. This is what I, I, you know, maybe I, I really should be sticking to software, but the. Uh, I was taking one of the fans. So we were using 80 millimeter fans, um, which is important because these are bigger fans that can actually are much more efficient. So the ability to go slower than 5,000 RPM is actually be a feature. Um, and the, uh, the actually, to go ahead of it, the, the feature that we got, the, the, the modification that we had, the Sandy Decky fan, is the ability to go at 2K RPM versus 5K RPM at 0% PWM, which makes a huge difference. But I was testing this fan, or a different fan, but very similar, at 5,000 RPM, and then taking it all the way up to 12,000 RPM. And when I took that to 12,000 RPM, I hadn't really secured the fan very well, and it took off. Like, the fan was, like, was going across the bench. And I went, and, like, this is one of these things where, like, left arm and right arm had two different thoughts simultaneously, Left arm's thought, which is really the much better thought, is cut the power to this thing. Uh, right arm's thought was uh, prevent the fan from moving across the bench. And the, 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 uh, the problem is that the right arm beat the left arm, and I caught the fan. Uh, right, the blades went right into my fingertip. And not only did they slice off a bit of my fingertip, but then there was this uh, circle of blood on the wall in my, like, home lab. 
it's it's just oxide artwork. Don't it's oxide it. artwork. I definitely have like left it there. I'm like, no, like this is like I have I have bled for this uh, for for the for, for this fan modification. So uh, we definitely want, and so it, they are loud, and we have six of them, right? So at five thousand RPM, they are super loud. And I have always found it to be just grating when you plug in a, a, a Dell server, Supermicro server, and the first thing it does is go to full fan blast. I just feel it's like, oh, come on, we got to do better than that. So that's why we wanted to get to 2K RPM. Well, Brian, recall that we, we also figured out the air volume that would be moved when you turn up all six fans at 200%. Yes. And we actually decided to try this out in the office by putting one of the servers on the ground on top of ping pong balls and then turning all the fans on. And in fact, it will propel itself. It will propel itself. You just need a bus bar long enough <laughs> or you need power and you can actually move. So yeah, now these fans could definitely move a lot of air. Um, this began. Yeah. yeah so back to the, we had to dig down into their bill of materials yeah. and figure out exactly which component that made up the fans. They were short because they were telling us they weren't going to be able to deliver in time for our, um, EBT engineering build, which was pretty critical path on our schedule, um, to get through the engineering build cycles. And so we figured out what specific component in their bomb was short. We went around the supply chain to see if we could find inventory of that through any distribution channels or any strategic partners. And it turns out we found a bunch of these on the broker market. And we've seen that a lot over the past year and a half as supply chain tightens, like brokers are swooping up any inventory that comes into stock at the disties. Okay, could you describe and, the broker market a little? Because this is basically like, as far as I can tell, like the supply chain mafia. It's the way it is. I mean, it's, what is the broker market? Yeah, play at your own risk. Um, so it's basically parties, either entire companies, which are more legit. That's actually the broker market that we like that we went through. And I can elaborate on that, that are buying parts through distribution channels that are hot commodities that are on allocation, very constrained, and then they're marking them up and reselling them to people that need them. And they're holding some inventory there so you can get them quickly, normally drop ship to you without waiting the lead time that might be 52 weeks, sometimes up to 104 weeks we've even seen. Um, and then there's the sketchy brokers that is just <laughs> <laughs> someone in a loading Wait, dock the, where they took a box off a truck or something like so, that. Or So it varies from like the, the folks who are trying to like force down arbitrage, like jack up prices. And then the folks sketchier than that. <laughs> yeah, right. like that, like that's the range. Yes, the ones where like where this truck go, where this box go off the back of this truck, or why does this part number look slightly different? Oh, it's this like, oh, might be a counterfeit. Those yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I was like, the the, the issue of like, counterfeit parts is a real issue. I think Rick, I mean, you definitely opened my eyes to this early. It's unbelievable all the stuff that's counterfeit that's out there. And Kate, I mean, we must be, be trying very carefully to, I mean, obviously, we want to avoid counterfeit parts, but counterfeit parts are a real problem. Is that right? Oh, it's a real problem. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's why we've been very, very careful about using any broker supply. Um, there's only two examples I can think of where we actually went forward with broker supply, and that was because it was with a trusted broker partner. Actually, they're called Fusion. And... Hmm. Um, they were on a short list of good brokers. One of our team members, Kirsten Nira, who's a supply chain badass and has a yeah. long history um, at Lenovo, had actually worked with them in the past. And so she kind of had already vetted them from that relationship. 
but we also went in and did some additional vetting and they do, um, they're a longstanding company with a good history in the broker market. They do third-party testing. They honor the manufacturer warranty three years in this case. They do authenticity and functionality checks before they send them to you. And so it's not just basically a pass-through where they mark up the price and then send you some counterfeit parts. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we actually worked with Sanyo Denki to get them to honor their warranty with the brokered part, which, I mean... right. Yeah, we went back to Senior Denki said, we found you this supply. If we buy it from this broker and drop ship it to you. So that's what we ended up doing. Buy the part from Fusion and we shipped it to Senior Denki. We worked with their engineering team to qualify that to be a qualified part going through their normal build processes, processes, their normal quality checks, and still honoring their warranty. Like this is legit. If the fan fails two years from now, it's still within warranty. And Kate, can you give a little bit of context on why that is not a common occurrence why like a a vendor that you're procuring a part from may not want you digging around in their bill of materials and then trying to second source their subcomponents yeah i mean for one they don't want competition against uh the limited inventory that's out there but there's typically most manufacturers have an abl an approved vendor list and that's companies that have ISO 9000 certifications or various quality checks, depending on what their criteria are to be an approved vendor. And they only will buy parts from those lists within their procurement org. So that's kind of where us being smaller, scrappy startup and being able to leverage this broker market, but still do the necessary quality checks, not cutting any corners. Um, we were able to get this part added to their approved vendor list and then input into their build process. Yeah, when I also have to say, like, do you, I mean, first of all, hats off to you and the team and, and Kirsten for actually being able to pull this off. I mean, this is really uh, amazing to pull this off. Um, but I, I think this is also a testament to us going deep on these partnerships and really, because it just, it was great to have, you know, when Spenio Denki was out visiting us and seeing the rack. I mean, for them, they expressed like, this is unusual. Like, this is not something we've done really for anyone else. But it was a relationship with Oxide that really, I just, I, the reason we were willing to do this is because of how diligently Kate, you and your team were, were working with them on it. Um, so there's a, I, it, there's a lot of value in building these relationships in the supply chain. Yeah, we found making the, the, getting the inside contact directly with the engineering team, working with the procurement team closely and being honest and transparent about our demand signals, not arbitrarily inflating them just to try to swoop up more allocation has really gone a long way. So just telling them like, this is truly what we need. This is our main quantity to be successful for our upcoming build. Um, what can you do? How can we get creative about getting that inventory to us on our schedule? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and also before, but we're just going to say like my experience at a much, much, much larger company uh, before, Oct I mean, you know, Samsung had all the buying power in the world and it was eye-opening to see Kate, you and Kirsten and team operate because my experience has been you go and you're told a lead time and you pound the table and you threaten to use another vendor, you know, which was the Samsung model. And you see if you can't chip away at that lead time and to see kind of this collaborative approach and then be able to start working with a vendor to find the subsystems that are the actual issue, that it's not the fan, it's a TI part or something else and then kind of collaboratively work to help them go source that, source it securely and get that integrated in was, um, that was definitely a first for me. And it was, it was impressive to see. Yeah, I think we've been really 
lucky that we have a team that's willing to build those relationships. That's been really a key part of who we've hired in the operations org at Oxide and how we've continued to select partners of who we want to include in the design. The strategic partnership and partnership of shared values really goes a long way. Kate, have you ever seen something like that happen before? Where like you dumpster dive the bomb and injected something into their own supply chain? Honestly, no, I've never seen that. Um, yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, it, it, and I again, you know, it's it's funny because when you talk to these folks and you explain, you know, we, we get to explain that you know Oxide's approach in terms of deep partnership. They, it's like, oh my god, what a breath of fresh air! Like, thank you so much. I mean, it's like we find so much. Uh, th- th- I mean, they're so positive about that, and especially when you use that as a lens for the partnership, and you select partners that, and we and we have had partners where we have like, well, we actually, you know, we're, I, th- th- this relationship is not where we want it to be, and someone else comes along with that better relationship. It's like, no, sorry, we're going to go with this better relationship because the relationship is really, really, really important to us. And it's for the ability to do things like this. Um, yeah. That, I mean, really- and we've actually been able to succeed with this approach, not just with Sanyo Danke, but with uh, Murata in our power supply. We similarly asked them to walk through their bill of materials and figure out what was constrained and why we couldn't get supply. And there was 30 parts that were constrained out of their bill of materials. We went and well, searched the market and narrowed that down to 11 parts where they could focus on those 11 and eventually got it down to one part, which is a TI butt converter, I think Steve mentioned earlier, which we ended up being able to source that TI part, get it in this in this case, we didn't have to like get it through broker supply. We got it through uh, Disney supply. And so we were able to just send them that part directly. And it actually unlocked their build and not just for Oxide. So there are other customers that had backlog also got their supply much earlier oh wow i actually i did not realize that wow that is uh, that is amazing again what a testament but obviously like talk about strengthening a relationship yeah talk about partnership absolutely (laughs) yeah it's like wow uh thank you customer boy we're really in this together um it's with the morado one i think is also interesting kate because when we were hitting and i think you know with each of these when we've hit them it's been this like all hands on deck kind of like because these are existential like if we if we don't have a power shelf we don't have a product. If we don't have fans, we don't have a product. And we, so you, we are obviously focused. And I know as the operations team is focusing on solving this the right way, the engineering team is fantasizing about solving it the wrong way. Namely, we were like, how hard is it to build a power shelf? And I, Adam, I don't know if you were in any of these conversations. No. Oh, no, where, where, oh, no. Eric is like, you idiots, let me explain to you how complicated a power shelf is. And let's just say that like, uh, we learned quickly that we will not be building a power shell. I mean, we do we do have a lot of startups within Oxide, but that is not one we want to take on. That, that is not one we want to take on. And Eric was walking us through the, just the complicated. I know, Rick, you were also often chiming in on educating people about how complicated these things are. It's like, no, no, you actually like, you no, really, you want to get the, you, like, let's help Murata resolve their supply issue, please. Let us not, we're not going to do this like ever. So uh, that was... Um, but that, and it, so Kate, that, that kind of highlights another point that I think is, you know, is, that I'm so impressed with about your team, but it just seems to be true about the supply chain in general. It's, it is detail oriented. Like the details really, really matter. And you've got to wade into the details. I mean, it feels like an obvious thing to say, but I feel like some of the, it doesn't feel like everyone is, is as detail oriented as, as this team has been. Yeah. So actually that's another unique thing about operations and supply chain at Oxide is I have never 
in my past experience in my career, been engaged so early and so deeply with the engineering team. So operations often is this silo, um, like you mentioned at the top of the call, but where they get engaged in the final stages of the engineering build and then they're, okay, go work the commercial side, negotiate prices, figure out how to get us capacity and supply, but the design is locked. At Oxide, we really took an integrated approach from the beginning where I was in all the hardware huddles with the team as they were making design determinations. We were checking what the supply chain situation were was for those parts as we were going, and we were able to start engaging early in three-way calls with our vendors. So the engineers, the FAE support teams, the operations team was in those conversations forecasting early and often to suppliers. And I think that's really helped us succeed as we've gone through EVT and through the engineering build cycles. Yeah, I mean, there were, and there were a couple of parts that, I mean, we, uh, I can think of a, a bunch of times where we actually changed it up where it's like, hey, this part, I mean, I think, I think still the world record longest lead time we heard uh, on a Vitesse semiconductor part was a 93 week lead time, if I recall correctly. And it's like, at that point, you're like, isn't this thing like no longer for sale? Like, what is a 93 exactly. week lead time? Um, but that was one of those where like, okay, obviously we have to find an alternative and I, uh, you know, again, a bunch of hard work and as you say, collaborative work between engineers and folks on, on your team in the supply chain at the vendors kind of trying to triangulate and find the right part. Um, and it's been hard on, on a bunch of time, but it feels like we've been able to endure and it's part of the reason like at this point, I'm going to knock on wood, but we're in, I mean, we, we've been in surprisingly good shape from a supply chain perspective. Yeah, we've uh, gotten ahead of a lot of issues. We did some early bulk buys to cover our demand for the next year and a half, two years of our strategic parts that are locked in the design. And so that has really helped us. And then we've continued to iterate on the design with that collaboration, engineering and operations, where we check inventory as we're putting something into the design. And sometimes we've had to select I can think of some specific parts where we had to select basically a higher grade part in the same product family from a supplier. So this is especially in some of the electrical components. We had to select one with like a a tighter temperature margin or something like that that might cost 50 50 cents more per part, but had a bunch of inventory on hand. And so we had to make those trade-off decisions like, do we want to build in the next two years or do we want to spend 50 cents less per part? And so a lot of times we've had to make those decisions and choose what goes in the bomb that way. And Kate, I think one, one thing that, again, on the other side of it seems obvious, but uh, until you and your team started following this approach or indoctrinating this approach, it was uh, not quite as self-evident. But it's the process of kind of getting the bill of materials and listing that all out. And then in the column next to that, listing out the current estimated lead times for all those parts, and then having the pricing for all those parts, and basically saying, we're going to go buy further out inventory of the low cost parts that are longest lead time, which, again, it, it, it does seem straightforward. But I think the methodology by which you and your team kind of walked through that has put us in this great position where it is like we're going to go buy two or three years of supply of the less expensive parts that have long lead times. And, it, you know, then those that are the most expensive part of the bomb, things like MBME or other, we're not going to buy, buy, you know, two years in advance, but we know the lead times are short enough to where we're going to be able to meet the demand forecast. Um, and that sort of sophistication in thinking about inventory management has been a big part of why we're in the position we're in. Yeah. And even um, 
being able to select different package types. So a tape and reel versus tube versus trays. We've been working with our manufacturing partner to figure out what the ideal is, which is pretty much always a full tape and reel. But we've been able to sometimes get supply by buying in tubes and then repackaging into tape and reel, which is not always ideal. You might have some fallout, but it allows us to get supply that's otherwise unobtainium. Can, so, can, can you tell me what yeah. any of that means? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, for, for those who are not regular listeners of Pick Plays podcast, a podcast Sorry, that, that, that is a good one. To me that I haven't yeah, that's a good one. But for those who are not regular listeners of Pick Plays podcast, what uh, what are those things? Yeah, so a lot of our electrical components that go into the SMT line for the PCBA. So once all the components get added onto the PCB, um, they come in different packages. So a tray being literally as you would think like a flat tray where the pieces are set in different little cubbies on there and the equipment can pick up the pieces out of the tray and the automation automated equipment can put it down on the PCB. Um, tape and reel is a roll basically where the small components are fed into a machine via the roll and then to a different package style. So it's basically just how the SMT machine gets the package and automates putting it on the PCBA. So when you're talking about like transferring, say, a tape to uh, to a tray, is that a shorthand for like some dude sitting there and like yeah. picking it up? There's third-party okay. companies we shipped them out to. Actually, we got the inventory benchmark, shipped it out to a third-party repackaging company that is literally, yeah, some dude <laughs> taking them off out of a tray and putting them on a tape in real. <laughs> I mean, not to be too reductive, but yeah. I did not really, you know, actually, it's funny that Adam was asking that. I'm like, no, 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 we didn't have the repack. Oh my God, we did have the repackage. I, I did not know that. I, I, the And so SMT is surface mount technology. These are these parts that, and if you if you haven't, if folks have not, you should find YouTube videos of these machines cranking. I mean, they are uh, amazing um, to watch these things in, in action. Uh, I mean, the sophistication required to actually get these things onto the, 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 the PCB is just amazing. Uh, and it's really, really neat to watch. So yeah, it is, you say, so th- these are, um, we, we had to get a bunch. So, so what did I think, I don't really think, in terms of repackaging it, we're sending in multiple trays to get onto, onto tape and reel, right? I mean, cause tape and reel holds a lot more parts, right? Is that? Yeah. Correct. Right. Okay. Yeah. Multiple trays or most commonly it was tubes. Uh, Benchmark can't accommodate tube type at all. And so those are the ones we had to repackage, but we were able to get inventory easier. Got it. And then on all those things that, you know, that Steve is talking about where we hit those long lead time parts early, I feel like a lot of those long lead time parts became even longer lead time. And we look at it in hindsight, we're like, oh my God, thank God yes. that we did that. I remember complaining, being like, this is 26 week lead time. This is crazy. And then we're going back through and walking the bomb now weekly. And we're seeing some of those lead times at like 60, 70 weeks. And so. Okay. Kate, I'd love to hear more about this. Cause like, obviously everyone hears about the supply chain crunch and we experience it through like, you know, weird runs on toilet paper or whatever, but like you've been doing this for a long time. So can you describe like are the, what what things have been shocking to you or or what have you seen that's been particularly different or alarming? So I think it seems no surprise here but everyone's talking about it but it seems worse than ever now like the worst I've seen in my career um in terms of lead times and parts being on allocation. And when I say that I mean You can't just go place an order on allocation means the manufacturer who makes a part is allocating specifically each part that comes off the line to a specific customer, which is uniquely challenging for a startup because that means we're buying with the big 
Google's and Microsoft's and all the big manufacturers of the world that probably have very large buys and contracts in place that get them the first allocation of those parts coming off the line. And so I think there's a lot of things contributing, contributing pandemic, uh, war situations. And I don't want to go into like all the different things that the media is covering of what's causing it more so what the impacts are and, um, how we're working around it. Yeah, no, totally. I, I guess I just mean, were there any things that you've seen where you're like, really? Like 52 weeks for this? Normally it's it's 52 minutes or whatever. Oh, God. All over the place. All up and down the <laughs> bomb. So electrical components, like capacitors and resistors, which we kind of held towards the end. Like I remember as we were preparing for EVT, we were um, buying, the like Brian mentioned, we bought the strategic big components and we're like, okay, Caps and resistors are short lead time. We can wait until, I don't know, six to 10 weeks before the build and we can order those. That's never been a problem before. And then when we started getting close, Kirsten and I started looking at each revision of the bomb and we started pushing the electrical engineers to be like, nope, you need to make a determination sooner. These lead times are now 20 plus weeks. Um, and so, Which is, I mean, that is yeah. for a cap and a, I mean, that is, that is off the hook. I mean, that is crazy. I mean, and you think that, like, Kate, the, like, the, so the STM 33 atom, that is the service processor, there are people who are like, how did you even get any of those to build out of? Because those are out of And Kate, does that recall we had some package issues there as well? Yeah, right. Go, sorry, Rick. Well, I was just going to say, like, I, I have a friend who had a part that kept getting pushed further and further out for lead time to the point where, the update emails from the distributor actually wrapped around and sent him a date in the past. <laughs> That's a fun one. I feel like this actually- we get so many um, auto updates now on parts we have on order that I probably get 25 to 30 emails a day now of like update uh, to your date changing of your delivery date of your order. It's just crazy how often they're changing. And it is, and even if the, the folks that are big buyers don't necessarily have, I mean, as you say, like they, they get big allocations, but they also have got harder problems to solve because they need to buy bigger numbers. And the, I think another advantage we had, take correct me if I'm wrong, but the the fact that we were on newer designs, for you know, we were not we're using designs that are are the, the manufacturer's newest design or newer design, something they're featuring. The, if folks that are on these old designs are and buying in high volumes, which is to say, like the automotive industry buying MCUs that you know for uh, that that maybe haven't that are a trailing edge design, um, they get are are just getting annihilated. Is is kind of my read. Is that a, is that a fair? Yeah, that's totally fair. So we're typically on the latest gen on most of our parts because we're typically rolling from like a roadmap conversation with a strategic supplier to leading, buying one of their newest releases, even in like the quarter it was released. And so we're often through the engineering build cycle at low volume, been able to get away with like, here, we'll send you a hundred piece sample of this new part that's hitting the market. And then we use that for our engineering build and immediately place a PO for our production demand. And so we're able to get ahead of kind of some of those large volume players moving to that new technology. So, Kate, another thing I wanted to ask you about was panic buying, because I know we have engaged in panic buying. We've definitely become part of that problem where, you know, we're like, we don't know if we need this part or not. But, OK, we just found 700 of them available. Like, let's buy it. Um, and then we on some of those things, we've like resold them later. Um, 
I know early in the supply and cra- supply chain crunch, we thought lots of people were engaged in this, and so there would be this big release of parts and things would kind of alleviate, but we haven't really seen that happen. Um, is that my imagination or has that not yet happened? Um, a little bit of both. So I definitely think there was panic buying and I think other industries and other companies swooped up entire thousands and thousands of parts over what they're actually building and probably have a stockpile somewhere in their inventory control system. Um, I think there are a couple cases though where we would, uh, Kirsten and I would be monitoring the DISTI sites. Like, I remember some Saturday mornings, like 7 a.m., being like, oh my gosh, 40,000 of this part just hit the site. And typically, that's like someone had placed an order um, via the distribution channel. And then when their order became available to ship, had decided that they didn't need it. And then they'll put that entire bulk that had been forecasted and allocated to them up available for grabs. And so we saw that happen a couple of times, and that's when we did our panic buying to be like, okay, we haven't seen this available in two months. We need to buy it now. Um, But it hasn't happened as much as I had hoped. I think people are still holding on to their supply. Yeah, and I think in particular, we've had this idea through the entire supply chain crunch. I mean, I remember hearing like, all right, look, it's bad now, but by mid-2021, it's going to clear up. By late 2021, it's going to clear up. By early 2022, it's going to clear. And now people have kind of stopped saying anything. Now it's just kind of like, it's bad. Yeah, just don't, it's going don't to be jinx bad. it with a date. We haven't seen memory prices coming down a little bit this quarter, which is a nice relief. Um, and I'm glad, like Steve mentioned, we we bought kind of as we needed it in that space. And so we did not buy a two-year buy-ahead on memory because that is one of the highest cost parts of our bill of materials. So I'm hoping for that to continue to lower and correct. And so we'll kind of buy quarter by quarter. Yeah. And of course, all that stuff is, you know, it, 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 we're obviously nervous because, you know, figuring out like, you know, what you stockpile and how much. Um, and I remember one of those decisions that was, you know, the, a big question around Intel Tofino and how much we, we buy ahead on that. Uh, turns out we made the right decision on that one. I, Kate, I don't know if you've heard kind of the latest that we've been hearing and talking to folks. We didn't know if other people are seeing this out there, but switches are unobtainable right now. Uh, and people are getting quoted, you know, 200 plus day lead times from Cisco, which is not something that you would expect normally. Yeah, so I think buying ahead on Tofino 2 was really smart and strategic for us, and we have enough to get us through our first year of production, and I think that was the right choice because we're, we're already placing future demand, and we've been working closely. That's one of those strategic partners. We've been meeting closely with their team, providing forecasts and getting ahead of that, and so I don't expect us to have a gap there on inventory of those. And the, 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 and are there some other big wins like that? Because I feel like we've had a couple of these that just feel like, wow, thank God we did that. What a big win. And we, you know, we got lucky a little bit, but we were also, we did our homework and we made the, the right decision. Um, are there any others that come to mind like that? I think one of the ones that comes to mind that has had its peaks and valleys, I'd call it both a war story and a win, is um, with NXP on the LPC 55s. <laughs> And I, I yes. hear you laugh because it has been kind of a roller coaster, but um, the LPC five you may know from our pre- previous two spaces on its vulnerabilities. So we have a complicated relationship with the LPC fifty five yes. and the, the vulnerabilities that Laura has found. Yeah, so it's been as we've been chasing getting the security vulnerabilities fixed, we've also been chasing getting the right package on the supply chain side. And so the LPC fifty five comes in various different package types and we wanted to get the specific one for our design. And then we wanted to also get 
um, the latest revision that had the security vulnerability patches in place. And so in order to do that, uh, what we were told by NXP is we just need to get the parts that are after a certain date code. So after a certain date code, all the parts they'd be shipping out would have the fix in place. And so you're, as you would imagine, us being the one who found the vulnerability, it was important to us to have that in place <laughs> ahead of our production builds. We knew that our engineering builds weren't going to get it because of the schedule. Um, but there was no clean way to do that on a procurement side. And we were directed back to the DISTI channel, basically just keep ordering parts until you get the ones with the right day code and RMA the <laughs> ones that are bad. And that's what we had to do. Wow. Which is kind of that's, like, a, that there has to be a better way. <laughs> But, oh god i know and like rma the ones that are it's like okay like but you're okay are you sending those to a customer i mean it's like hey you know it's been yeah it's been a it's been a challenge i, I would yeah, say i think the disney's caught in the middle weren't happy with it either because they basically that was the workaround they just had to we had to keep placing orders until we consumed all of their on-hand inventory and started getting new but new build parts and so we did that and now we have the good parts so that's the good that's the win there <laughs> <laughs> I I was reassured by NXP that we were the only people ca who cared about those vulnerabilities. I don't know that they actually told anyone else. Exactly. Um, I I was actually working for um, one of my clients at the time was using the NXP LPC 55S uh, 28 and 69 parts. NXP did not reach out to the client at all. It did not reach out to us, the people who were doing the engineering. Not a word about it. Wow. Charming. Yeah, come on, NXP. And this is, I mean, this, and I actually, it was funny, Laura Abbott, you, you've been on our space a couple of times, great blog entries, and Laura, uh, I think she was on, was, um, was it the the Amp Hour, Rick? I'm sure she went on a couple of podcasts. But when there was a great interview with Laura, they're just like, uh, like, why are you still in this relationship? Like, why are you still with NXP? And like, well, you know, if you unfortunately, there are a bunch. This this is a secure silicon is actually a really hard problem, as it turns out, and uh, hard in it. it it's um, we'd welcome alternatives, but this is where we are. The and the LPC fifty five, it should be said, is uses our root of trust. I think for those catching folks up on that, so it's very. This is a very important part for us, and it's an important point of principle that this not have that this have the fix for the vulnerability that that Laura found. So. Um, and I'm really sorry to hear that NXP is not being forthcoming with that for the customers. It's really uh, aggravating. So, Kate, are we taking and are we been able to then RMA the ones back that we uh, effectively the ones that we're we're not going to use because they do have the vulnerability? Um, do you want the whole story? <laughs> yes and no. Sure. <laughs> so one of the boxes was open, so we could check the date code, and they won't take those back. Oh my God. The other box we knew then because it came in the same shipment. It was part two of that shipment. We did not open the box, and yes, we oh already made it. Oh, that's so nuts! They're like, "Well, what's the date say?" It's like, "Well, we checked, and it says this." It's like, "Well, we can't take that now. It's an open box." So it turns out, I think uh, Nathaniel <laughs> got a huge box of LPC fifty-five shipped to his house. <laughs> I mean, we get, we'll use the parts yeah. and. Hey, if anyone wants to buy some LPC five parts, like price is reasonable, and we are not a shady broker. Like these it's are true, not yeah. parts. They came direct from <laughs> NXP, and they still have yes yeah, packaging. Well, yeah. we know how vulnerable they are. The, right. Well, these are right. Exactly. I guess these. It is true. Okay, fine. Yes, these parts do have certain vulnerabilities, but we know what that vulnerability is. We have a workaround for it. 
Uh, that yeah. client I mentioned uh, doesn't actually isn't actually affected by that issue. So if I hear anything, maybe I'll send them your way. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, that'd be great. With we'll, the we'll, we'll definitely. And Kate, how often does because the other thing I have found is it feels like and correct me if I'm wrong, this is not a kind of a world that people talk about very much. Um, I mean, certainly the big buyers are that are out there are not forthcoming about their supply chain. It seems. Yeah, there's a lot of secrecy and around it and sometimes for good reason around product security or just the surprise and delight of a new product coming to market but we found that kind of the transparency and the partnership doesn't really work as well if you're trying to hide some of those details we still obviously get ndas where appropriate and we're smart about that but um like if we were treating it that way, we wouldn't have been able to have the creative problem solving that we had with Murata and the Sanyo Danke. Um, we're being pretty transparent. And one of the big things that has allowed us to succeed is kind of selling our partners and our vendors on what Oxide's mission is, what this industry is we're going to go disrupt, um, kind of what our long-term strategic play is, the scale of the business we're going after and how, well, we might be tiny now, we will be mighty later. And if you get in early, you'll be in our design. And there's a b- great win and a unique use case about how we integrate your product into our product. Yeah. And I think that also I, I found that one of the values that, that, that our partners enjoy is that we, because we are taking some of their newer designs and we're using them the way that they kind of intended them to be used. Um, and it's, you know, you look at like Renaissance, which were, um, we've got the, the, the Renaissance, the Fulcher regulators we're using there, or with Samtech and the, the, our use of the flyover cables, where they're like, and actually I didn't quite realize this until Samtech was looking at our design in our office, where they're like, thank God, like someone is doing it this way. It's like, yes, but you, you make a very good case that everybody should be doing it this way. And they're like, yes, of course we do, but like, you're the only ones actually doing it. And I think that that also helps because I feel like we're proving out their theses as well, I think. Yeah, I think there's a lot of really cool stories of us being kind of a use case or a story that they can tell as part of their marketing as well, seeing it succeed in our product. And Samtech is definitely one of those. And so can you speak a little bit to how you built the team too? Because you also have, I mean, it's just so funny to kind of think about this crazy notion that we had pre-COVID that this is going to be a team in the Bay Area. Because it turns out, your team is not in the Bay Area at all, and yeah. they are I, zero out all of, zero out of five of us are in the Bay Area. Uh, turns out we're all across the U.S., all different time zones, and that has been a huge win for us. And I, the strength of what we've been able to accomplish really is our team. We're a small, scrappy operations team. We're only five people, but the team we have assembled is really what has allowed us to succeed. Um, this is definitely not all on me. And so we have um, Eric Anderson who came to us from a small company, manufacturing company, and he's used to wearing many hats. And he is, work- he is working as our PM, and he's local in Minnesota where we're manufacturing. And so he's working really closely with Benchmark, our contract manufacturer, and he's just been crushing it. Um, and so that's a well, huge, and- huge help. Okay, so that's a good one to take apart a little bit because Eric is like boots on ground in Minnesota, and we are – by and large, we are onshore. Most of the the the, the assembly is certainly happening onshore. We've got and boy, we had a recent issue where we were dealing with someone offshore. And I can't. I don't know if you. I definitely had the flashback of like, oh my god, this would have been 
Oh, this would have been impossible we would have to do. Basically, been living living in Asia the past twelve months had we not chose to keep it U.S. based um, through those engineering builds. I think this was definitely the right call, especially for the size team we have. I mean, the t- the ops team that supports an engineering build cycle on a product at Apple is probably three hundred plus people strong, and we're a team of five, and so it's very different. And we've been able to basically keep it on shore. I mean, it, it's not, it, wasn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily a point of principle, but it was kind of increasingly we have found that we've been able to get much better collaboration. And with Eric being able to like just go down to the facility and you know, walk the line, and I mean, it feels like the, the spirit of problem solving has been much, much, much better by having someone who's close to the facility. Yeah, and I do think keeping it in the U.S. on point of principle is really important as well from a personal standpoint for some of our um, manufacturing processes. It's a unique thing in the tech space, which is a key differentiator from the security standpoint as well. Totally. And it's it's funny because I think that has become more and more important. You know, I mean, at this point, you know, Oxide was founded three years ago, and there's been some things that have changed in the last couple of years and some things that were very you know, very kind of idiosyncratic or iconoclastic beliefs three years ago. And now we're, people are relieved that all this is on shore um, for all the reasons you outlined. So it feels like we, we made the right decision there yeah. um, in a lot of different dimensions. Yeah, and I, I do want to talk about a couple of our other team members. About yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So yeah, yeah. I mentioned Kirsten. She's been crushing it on the supply chain stuff. So a lot of those examples I gave before, but she comes from kind of different part of the product life cycle, which is helpful. So we all have different strengths on the team and hers um, is a long career at Lenovo IBM working in RMA rework, warranty and repair side of the house. And so as we think about going to market, that skill set is really, really strong and important to us, um, how we think about supporting our customer till the end. And so while she's been the one doing some of these creative supply chain things like working with Sanyo Denki and Murata in the broker industry, um, she also has a lot of experience later in the life cycle that we are going to leverage. And so she's one of our team members. And then uh, we also have CJ Mendez, Mendez, who is in Texas. And he kind of is one of those all-around ops generalists who wears many hats. And he also has a sales background. So I talk about we need to kind of sell our suppliers on the Oxide mission and the opportunity and what we're building. He's been key there. Um, he stepped up as program manager and the lead of the ops team while I was out on maternity leave. So he's, he's pretty awesome. And he's also doing a lot of ops automation work, which has been something CJ and Daniel Suter on our team have been working on together, which is also really unique about what we're doing in ops. And actually the first time I've seen it where the ops team is looking at automation, not as an after the fact, let's go put a bandaid on this, but as like a first class citizen, how do we go, build our ops processes and tooling from the ground up with automation in mind, like API access being front of mind when we select operations <laughs> tools. <laughs> okay. So I, you know, we're, we've got to talk about PLM and so this is one of the other things that you did earlier when you came to Oxide. It's like, we need to go make a POM determination. I'm like, what is POM? <laughs> <laughs> And Adam, did you know anything about PLM? I assume you didn't know anything. No, no, I knew nothing about it. And I think like Kate, it must have been very, very early wrote, wrote this great RFD describing it. And how many of those calls did you have to be on, Adam? How many did I, You know what? I got how much pain into, did you sit more, there? I got how roped into more than you might imagine because um, when people hear API, they think that that's going to be something I care about, which is often true. Um, um, people in the sense is me. 
And I definitely <laughs> recall, like, if I have to sit through this pain, Adam's got to sit through this pain with me. Because talking to these vendors is like stepping into a time machine. And we, because Kate, you should talk about, like, why API access is so important for us. And some of the answers that we heard from the, the POM industrial complex. Yeah, so I come from a past life where a lot of the job was done in Microsoft Excel, copying and pasting or running macros. And a lot of the data kludging and putting stuff together was just a lot of copy pasting. And I didn't want that. And I didn't think it scaled for a small team of five people to be able to do it. We're talking uh, thousands of different parts in our design and needing to check things like on-hand inventory, lead time, pricing, um, and just keep track of all that data, as well as tracking like engineering change orders as uh, design changes happen and product status. And all these things were important in a PLM solution that we could manipulate the data via API, not just one component at a time, and that we could continue to iterate on that. And we could do forecasting, we could do our MRP, like material resource planning in terms of how many do we need, we could do our clear to builds. For Did we already say product lifecycle management? I just want to make sure we, we, we actually <laughs> defined it. Yeah, sorry. Yes. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Yeah, sorry. So sorry for those that don't know what that is, it's basically a tool. There are some clunky old ones, which, or there are some newer ones, which we're using Duro as our PLM tool, which is a cloud-based solution that is much newer to market, a smaller startup. Um, we found that to be the right fit because of API access and some of the ways they're thinking about that as a collaborative space in the cloud, um, which fits with what we're doing. But PLM is basically you house, house things like your bill of materials. So it's the point of record that will have, these are the parts that make up your sub-assembly. This is what revision they're on. It even has, this is the price. This is the lead time for that part. And then it can have drawings attached or our CAD files attached, um, our TTM, like our, our files we send to TTM, who is our PCB manufacturer. We get a tech data package. We build some automation around what gets extracted from Duro and from ORCAD. And then we have a package we can upload to them to go build it. So it's like, how do we know we're pointing to the source of truth? We need to have some system in place that's not just shooting emails back and forth. Yeah, and it's been really important for us. Adam, do you want to talk about it in Postgres? <laughs> sure. So, I mean, this is this is sort of a, a piece of automation that that is persistently eighty percent done, or something, or maybe that's even generous. But I think, as Kate was saying, like you want a source of truth where you say whether I'm designing a, a PCB or I'm putting together the bomb or investigating alternatives for parts. Like, I want a single source of truth, and we want that ideally to be. Uh, to be RPLM, in this case, Duro. Um, ORCAD is the design software that we're using. And when I say we, I mean people who know what they're doing, which is not me. I've, I've only like pulled it up enough to like validate uh, this one component of how it works, which is what um, ORCAD really wants is like a database, like a relational database somewhere that houses uh, an inventory of all the parts. And so um, the sort of prototype that I did was to build a um, like a, a ORDB connector um, that, that pretends to be, uh, that, that, that points to a Postgres database and then a, a layer on top of Duro that makes it look like a Postgres database. So we could 
point ORCAD or design tool directly, uh, you know, via this kind of arcane path, you know, through a service, but at Duro to use it as its system of truth. Now, where, where it was a prototype that kind of fell apart was that ORCAD needs some other data yeah. like uh, that it can't pull directly out of there that needs to live in the file system. Um, and we kind of didn't quite get all the way there, but I still have hopes that like, that will make this one, you know, one system of truth, one source, source of truth, uh, you know, happen in the future. Well, and, and just highlights the importance of having the an API without an API. None of that Impossible. Possible. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And, so we feel very, very strongly that, I mean, an API was a constraint on that. And Kate, I feel like the API constraint alone eliminated the vast majority of, of contenders. Yeah, I think we probably surveyed maybe 15 companies and maybe two or three had APIs. It was, <sighs> it was pretty bad. It was so brutal. Those calls were absolutely brutal. And even the APIs that, I mean, the APIs that existed were pretty lousy i mean i think that hats off to duro being like a born in the cloud solution SaaS solution that got that that's part of their value that like making you know a lot of these folks don't want to give apis because they don't want to make it easy to get your data out because getting easy to get your data out means it's easy to get into another system yeah adam you keep saying your data they view it <laughs> their data right. their Who's data that requires a consultant three months to stand up the first in- instance okay right. I, I, i'm getting flashbacks this is too much this is it's gotten too vivid i oh god those calls were, were absolutely brutal so sorry kate i think you were going through and so you're talking about uh, about cj and daniel obviously collaborating on that uh, roping in adam and other members of the team as well yes and so we've built some great automation using API access. So both API access to Duro and some of our distribution channels, we've been able to get API, API access to pull the open order report and the open order status. And so we're able to run some automation every Monday that basically is our in-house MRP system, which is material resource planning. And that's how many of each part that's on one of these many bombs we have for different parts of the rack do we have on hand? How many do we need by a given date? Um, given our forecast and then when should we go place orders based on lead time and so that's something we've been able to automate and just run a report every Monday morning Daniel has crushed that and that allows Kirsten and I to go receive a signal from him like okay what do we need to go buy what's most urgent for us to go place POs for this week and so that's something that I've seen in the past take an entire expensive tool um yeah, a formal exactly. MRP system and like a whole team surround to run those types of reports. Yeah. And I, I mean, I definitely get the sense that, I mean, Daniel was very excited to come to Oxide to work on this kind of automation. And I get the sense that a lot of ops teams don't get the opportunity to focus on that. Is that a, is that a fair statement? Yeah. In my past life, it was always like a third uh, team within the org, like a separate silo oh, where you'd yeah. go and put in a request for automation and then you get prioritized or often, you don't get any resources. For six Never months. get prioritized, right? Yeah, um, and so you you might have great ideas of things that would help your workflow be so much smoother and take something that takes you eight hours down to like three minutes, but they wouldn't resource it. And so we've kind of built that in from the beginning with our ops team and how we structure, so that we can build the tools the right way up front. Yeah, and when I think it, you know, it, it kind of goes into a point, Adam, that I know we talked about on the last phase as well in terms of the importance of tool making. 
and enshrining that importance. And we would read that in across the company, obviously in the ops team as well. You, I mean, Daniel's building the tools that Daniel needs, that you need, Kate, that Kirsten needs. Um, which means that it's very directly connected to, to its end use case, and we end up building, you know, the right thing or, or, or evolving it to be the right thing. Yeah, I think it's really exciting that we're able to do that, and it, I think will serve us really well, and we'll continue to scale that way as we look for new ops team members to kind of keep automation as part of our core. So I want to ask you about that, too, because in terms of, you know, when we on the ops team, it was kind of the first time that we are hiring um, non-engineers, effectively. I mean, engineer, uh, uh, you are all obviously extremely technical and, and and are most engineers by education, but it was different than hiring a software engineer. And we were, as I recall, like changing the materials a bit. What what kinds of things were you looking for in a portfolio for someone coming in on the operations side? Because I think you had had some really interesting things we were asking people about. Yeah, I think a big piece of it was a little bit broader experience with a product in various stages. So not someone who just has cut POs before or worked in procurement, but someone who has seen kind of a product go through infancy up through like new product introduction and go into market, go into sustaining and go to end of life. And so our, a lot of our team members have kind of been through products through those various stages of the life cycle and not just served in one role, like not just in procurement, but familiar with logistics um, but familiar with like some of the automation, familiar with ops finance, um, familiar with working alongside the sales team to make sure we're supporting them and able to kind of have that tight collaboration and kind of think more strategically about the product roadmap. So not quite so siloed as typically you would see these as all different functions within ops. Yeah, and I, I also, I loved the way you, so we asked, uh, traditionally have asked engineers for an analysis sample and uh, to get into their analytic ability. And I love, if I recall correctly, like you kind of, you rephrase that as a, a process improvement sample. Um, yes, like is, someone who's not okay with the status quo and wants to improve a, an existing process, how they've done that. And I think that's been really interesting to see people's replies to that question. Um because we like the people that are not, they're okay with kind of doing what their company needs them to do, but willing to shake things up a bit and like press the status quo and push for something better and work on improving something that's just because it's been done one way for the past 10 years doesn't mean it needs to continue to be that way. Well, and I love that question too, because it kind of captures, I mean, there's like, there, there's obviously constraints. I mean, you're talking about, you know, you're, you're, you've got a process that's often involved in like making a thing. It's very important to the business and you need to find a way to improve that thing without breaking it. Um, and, you know, we, as with all things Oxide, for those that were applying to the company, we asked them to, to write this down and, and get a written explanation of this stuff. And I, I felt it really allowed us to get into some folks that we wouldn't have otherwise seen in a way that was really interesting. Yeah, I agree. It's been a really good uh, way to kind of learn about people's experiences. Like I mentioned on the ops team, we all have different backgrounds, different companies, different um, kind of stages of the product lifecycle that we've worked in different skill sets. And I think that's been really good to kind of get that end to end uh, scope across the five of us. Something we'll continue to expand upon for sure, because we don't have everything covered. There's still some ops um, niches that we need we need to expand for. For sure. So I, I guess, well, two questions then. One, um, for 
for those, I mean, obviously we as a company are a big believer in hardware, software, co-design. We think that there should be more startups that are focusing on this co-design, but there's this supply chain issue that kind of terrifies people. What counsel would you give to those companies that are kind of contemplating this and being scared off by the supply chain? Um, I think supply chain is a complex problem, but if you're detail oriented and you continue to seek partnership versus just like throw the hammer down, like I think Steve mentioned, and I've seen that approach as well, um, you can still be successful even in a constrained market. I think especially if you are working at lower volumes, I think once you become encumbered by some of the bureaucracy and the processes at some of the large companies, it becomes harder to think of those creative solutions and be allowed to execute them. And so I think staying scrappy and flexible um, in this small startup space, yeah, you that's, can still succeed. It, and that's great advice. I mean, use some of the advantages you have as a smaller company. And we've, I've certainly watched you do that over and over and over again at Oxide. Like, what are the advantages we have that we can bring to bear to help crack this problem? Um, and then I guess the other, the kind of the next question would be like, as you're talking about, you know, when you look forward and obviously we want to be a great big company, but what are some of the things that you think about as you're scaling the team and scaling the way we, we approach the project? Because these problems are going to get, I mean, they're obviously going to get harder as the, as the numbers get larger. Um, so what are some of the things that you're thinking about in that regard? Yeah, definitely thinking about how we build out our forecasting process to be a little bit more robust and make sure that we're communicating often with our supply chain partners to get ahead of things that go on allocation, especially as our volumes increase where we're no longer in this like, here, just give us 500p sample, it'll be okay space. And we get into these larger orders. Um, hopefully some volume pricing and uh, supplier contract agreements go along with that. And then also being very strategic about our on-hand inventory and which parts we hold inventory on and where, where we hold that inventory as well. Like whether that's at our contract manufacturer, third-party warehouse, at Oxide. Um, I still think as we scale, there's some unique challenges and things that we will sort through in that space. Yeah, absolutely. Those are two, yeah, definitely uh, challenges. I, mean, I feel like there's, in, in operations in the supply chain, there are new challenges every day. What's the, this space is not boring at all. Like there's always something new that's happening. Um, and it's been really, I mean, that, one thing that's been fun to just watch is watch you and the team deal with, you know, something that was totally green that we had totally under, uh, under control. Now all of a sudden we've got a new issue that we've all got to go tackle and watching the team tackle that as a team is really inspiring there have been a, been a couple of those recently that have been really fun to watch yeah i think those that ever evolving ever changing atmosphere that exists is why i love working in supply chain it's never the same thing week over week it's always something new that you didn't see coming yeah and then i just think also and again you're getting back to kind of part of the reason that oxide was attracted to you from the beginning uh allowing the working across an organization and allowing folks that work in operations supply chain to work very closely with the engineers who are actually designing the thing and working collaboratively and not kind of, you know, thinking of this as you know, my problem or versus your problem, but uh, thinking about together, I think that has been uh, really, really important for us as a team. Yeah, I think that's really a sharp point I want to make, Ryan, is that 
that was really what attracted me was I do have an engineering background, um, studying industrial and systems engineering. And I had worked in operations for the past 10 years, basically, and kind of gotten deeper and deeper down that silo where I got more and more isolated from the engineering org within the company. Um, and I was a program manager for an NPI team doing new product introduction. So I was in a very cross-functional role, but I was not engaged in the technical conversations as much as I enjoyed from a personal side of things. With that engineering background, I have a curious mind and I want to be involved and learn. I feel like I've gotten like a mini double E degree over the past two years. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the ability to work across silos and not just be doing uh, pricing negotiation and contracts, but be doing that on top of being in the conversations about a quality issue or a design issue or us needing to add a grounding strap to a power supply because we failed uh, pre-compliance testing or whatever it may be. Like, okay. I like being in those conversations. Yeah, well, it's been great having you in those conversations. I mean, it has been, I mean, you've been singular for the, the, the company. Such is so important. And obviously, and I've, I've told you before, but it's been uh, a highlight of my own career to be able to work with you, learn from you, watch the team you built, learn from that team. Uh, I mean, it's just been it's been a lot of fun. Uh, we've got we've got a lot of work ahead of us. But when people ask us about you know how, but you know you're making harder. How are you possibly doing with the supply chain? Uh, it's always like, well, let let us tell you about Kate and her team. So it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun to have you here and be able to to, to have you talk about it here. Um, so thank you so much for being willing to, to, to make the time to join us. Um, yeah, thank you. I think we're definitely going to follow it up with a supply chain blog post on the Oxide site later this week as well, because there's a lot uh, to talk about and a lot that our team is doing. So it's been fun, and I'm excited to continue to scale. That's going to be awesome. And I think you're going to see us, I mean, just as we have been as a company, but we are going to be transparent and continue to be transparent. And that blog post, I'm really looking forward to, to reading it. That's going to be great as we talk about some of the things we're working on for sure awesome all right thank you kate thank you everyone uh and we'll uh we'll see you next time thanks brian thanks adam Th thanks, thanks.